Well, good morning, everybody. It is good to see you here. We we are uh, embarking on part two of Luther. We're going to get into some uh, deeper theological uh, ideas that Luther had, and then we will uh, end up uh, talking about his death at the end. All right. Um, I will give a short review, um, just to catch you up and help, you know get the cobwebs out, and then we'll we'll keep on going. Sound good? All right. Thank you for that. <laughs> no one ever answers when I do. Okay. Well, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we uh, come to you um, asking for wisdom. Lord, we ask that. Even as we think about your servant, Lord, uh, from the past, that we might learn something today, that the things I say might be uh, not just accurate, but things that uh, might bring about uh, wisdom even for for us as we approach your table today. Lord, uh, we ask that you uh, prepare our hearts uh, even for that uh, before uh, we even go to church, uh, start our worship today, Lord, that we would be thinking on these things. We ask these things in your Son's name. Amen. So what's interesting today is that we are going to talk about the Lord's Supper through the eyes of Luther. Um, it is, uh, what's interesting is that if you were to tell a Lutheran that they believe in consubstantiation, they would be upset. Uh, So um, that term, um, not that that term is is not accurate, it's that that term has has become misunderstood. So we're going to try to get exactly what Luther was talking about in the Lord's Supper. I think he could teach us something. I think there's even some... uh, I mean, if I were running history, I probably would have made Calvin a little older so that he could have been uh, at the Marlborough Colloquy. And I'll tell you this, be careful who teaches you church history. If they have a British accent, you really have no idea how to pronounce anything right because uh, they mess things up, those British people. And you try to talk to Americans like, what is he talking about? Anyway, all right, Luther. So we, uh, we learned last week that Luther was born in Eisleben um, uh, back in 1483. And uh, you have to understand, there, you know, this is a weird time. I mean, 1492, didn't someone sail the ocean blue? Yeah, I mean, America's being discovered. Um, you know, being mistaken for India. There's a lot of things going on. Um, and so you can see that as the Reformation happens, um, this new world is being discovered where if we're going to break away from the church, which ends up becoming what happens, you think, where can I get away so that I don't get killed for believing this stuff? Hey, there's this new place that we thought was India. It turns out it's this giant forest. Let's go down there, right? Okay. 
So this is, this is very interesting how, how history comes together this way. Um, as we talked about last time, Luther was uh, born to a hard-working man, Hans, uh, Hans Luther. And, um, and Hans was this hard-working guy that wanted Luther to be a respectable uh, lawyer. So he doesn't have to work in the mines that uh, Hans had to work in and, so, and ended up becoming someone that owned them. Um, and so anyway, uh, as you know, Luther decided not to be a lawyer because of a lightning strike that was quite close to him. And remember what we talked about in those days, and I, and I say that carefully, um, lest we think that Luther was the superstitious person that a lightning strike made him think God was talking to him. I think we have, like I said last week, we have landed on the other side of that. God sends an entire plague on our country, and we just think, nope, just biology. Wuhan lab or whatever. And, you know, I get it. I mean, I know that's how it happened and all that sort of stuff. But if, if we think that, that God just has nothing to do with the things that are happening, I mean, that's where we are, right? We're so scientific. Um, and this is going to be something you need to think about because we're going to find, even in theology, Luther is going to be more welcoming to mystery than we are as, ref as Reformed people. Calvinists are often accused of being too scientifically precise uh, when it comes to theology um, by the Lutherans, by the conservative Lutherans. And we'll see why. Um, it's not a bad thing to be you know, precise, um, it, can be, it can be a problem. We'll, we'll talk about it. Okay. So, um, as a medieval thinker, he was, uh, he was strongly influenced by the idea of um, what it means for Satan to be involved in our life. Satan was not an analogy for him. Satan was not someone, some distant being, but someone he believed he was fighting every day whether it be the demons or, or Satan himself, which even, you know, and every time, you know, we bring up such things, we just, you know, Satan has done a good job at making that sound insane, to bring that up. It's, it's not academic. Uh, people don't like, don't like it because it sounds so um, Hollywood-like, right? Um, so... If you remember uh, what started the whole thing with Luther beginning to think differently, if you remember there was, the, there was this, the theology of Gabriel Beale, if you do your best, God will bless it. And so you just have to really work on doing your best, and, and God, will, God will, will reward that. Um, and then, if you recall, Luther began to teach at Wittenberg, and there he started teaching the book of Romans. And as he taught the book of Romans, he realized there is no way to do your best. There is no best. Even at your best, you're the worst. And he began to see that in the sacraments, particularly baptism and communion, um, those two sacraments were the things that were starting to bother him the most. Why? 
Because at his first Mass, he is thinking, what does it mean for me to do my best? It means that I am standing before God without seeking him, without, without being good because none are good. It's, it's me being the worst thing I can possibly be, and here I am holding God in my hands as I do Mass. And he thought, this is impossible. How can I do this? And then he began to look at baptism, and he said, and he thought to himself, is baptism just wiping away a stain that gets on us? As if we are otherwise good people, but sin lays a stain, and baptism will wash away the stain. He was convinced that we are not people with a stain, we are dead people. Baptism is not washing away a stain, it's a resurrection. That's how he viewed this. You have to also remember that Luther was not thinking these thoughts as if uh, to say, you know what, the Catholic Church is wrong, I need to start my own church. Um, that would be insane. Not insane just um, like it wouldn't occur to him, but it would be tantamount to being a blasphemer. What you're saying is, Thousands of years of Christianity is all a lie, and I figured it out. It would be that kind of arrogance. Um, and so he would have never thought, at least at this point, that pulling away from the Catholic Church would even be an option. He thought, once the Pope gets, you know, hears this, he'll, he'll understand. He'll go, oh, I get it. Yeah, we've kind of been doing this wrong. Thank you, Luther. Let's, let's adjust. Let's pivot. Uh, but, but then Luther started to get a little cynical because he visited Rome. You all remember this? He visits Rome and he sees that these aren't a bunch of pious men sitting around thinking of how they can please God. It's a bunch of men who are indulging in the money they are making from poor people putting up gold walls and, and paying, paying artists all this money and they're eating and drinking like kings and living like kings off of the backs of poor people. And there was no piety at all. And then he discovers this whole idea of indulgences is how they're making this money. Indulgences. And remember we talked about how these indulgences were designed to demonstrate someone's repentance. I gave you that example of, you know, if your son wrecks your car and he's really sorry and he's repentant and you say, one way you can show that you're sorry is give me whatever you got in your bank. And repentance would say, yes, absolutely take it. I am so sorry, right? But if, someone, but if your son comes up to you after ruining your car and acts like it's no big deal, and it's like, well, you'll be fine. You know, I got some money. Just take it. I got it covered. What's your problem? And there's no repentance, but they're willing to give up the money. That's the problem, right? That's where Luther said, this is what we're doing. We are teaching people to stop repenting. And we're teaching them to stop repenting by just handing over money, and you're happy to do it. And a guy named Tetzel was the guy 
Every time a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And we talked about how purgatory became a big moneymaker for the Catholic Church because very few people actually went from here to heaven. Most people, most Christians go to purgatory and you could be there for thousands and thousands of years. And wouldn't it be great if a little, if a little repentance money might get them out? Right? <laughs> so, so now Luther is not only concerned about some theology he is seeing that he thought might be easily corrected if people just listen. Now he's wondering about the hearts of the leadership themselves. It's becoming concerning to him. Um, and so he posts his 95 theses because he really wants to believe that this debate will get everyone on track. They'll realize what's going on. They'll go, you know what, you're right. We are teaching people to stop repenting. We need to fix this because in the end, we love Christ. And then he found that wasn't exactly what was going on. It was as if the beast got so big, right, that they lose the mission. Um, how many in here have ever worked for a major, major company? A major, major company like, yeah, Bob has. Okay, good. Major, major companies. You get these major, major companies like uh, BMW. Uh, we have a few in, uh, we have GE around us. We got Michelin. What happens is you have this, this mission that got it going. It really made it a success. Um, but by the time it becomes this huge beast, the only one really listening to the mission is the person that just got hired who, who's making minimum wage and like, you know, you're the guy that, you know, puts this thing on there. And you're like, oh, okay. And that's your job. And like, now, now you're going to hear the mission. This is how we got started and we love people and we want to help the communities. And it's all that kind of stuff, right? When you're in the CEO, CEO and you're in the upper echelon, the, no one cares about the mission. The mission is how do we survive in this marketplace how do we destroy anyone that's starting to do well? <laughs> right? And if you don't think that way, <laughs> then you're not going to do well, right? So the mission, of course, you have this official mission. The official mission is like, we want people to have the best products at the best time in the best parts of their life for their families. And you're like, oh, great. Uh, but in reality, it's we need to survive. We need the, the cheapest parts uh, and, you know, with the, with the best logo so that people will give us more money for the cheap parts we're using so that we can really survive in this marketplace. And this, these people seem to be doing well. How do we buy them out uh, and then sell off the parts, right? Okay. So the Catholic Church wasn't a denomination back then. It wasn't that, you know, the Catholic Church was doing well, but then you have the you know, a few other denominations that are, you know, making their way. The Catholic Church was, the, that was it. The Catholic Church was Christianity, that's right. Um, there was nothing else in town. It's what you would call a monopoly. And so it's this huge, big, massive beast. Where at the bottom you have these priests, right? They're the minimum wage guys. They, they like, the mission is Jesus Christ. And you're like, great. 
right? But if you want to move your way up the chain, you want to be a cardinal, you got to do some maneuvering, right? By the time you get to be a pope, I mean, you have little families that you've created with different women. You are, um, I mean, you're just this cold person that knows the business. You know what I mean? At one point, I mean, the, the popes were so corrupt um, at way <coughs> long before Luther, but it was an acceptable corruptness, right? Because even though they were corrupt, and the, the Catholic Church will even tell you this today, even though there were corrupt popes, and that is, that's a very sad situation. When they spoke ex cathedra, they were speaking from, from the very mouth of Christ. Ex, ex cathedra means from the throne, which means Christ himself is speaking right through them, and what he's saying is the absolute truth, even though that vessel might have been a sinful vessel. Right, the vicar of Christ. They can't decide if uh, they want to. I mean, when you're when you're in heresy, you just kind of get to flop back and forth, you know. Well, he's the vicar of Christ, you know. You know, but no one's perfect. Well, which is it? Anyway, doesn't matter. Um, we're not here to cut on Catholics. We have Luther for that. So, uh, so Luther was starting to get a little. Uh, he was starting to get a little upset, um, starting to get a little callous towards all, all this stuff, but still did not believe that there was going to be some breakaway from the church. He really believed there was going to have to be some repentance in the church. And he was looking for, uh, if I can put it this way, I mean, this terminology probably wasn't around back then, but he was looking for a revival in the Catholic Church. And, um, and so even when he had uh, his... His big debate uh, that he put on, remember I told you they had these things that looked like kind of presbyteries where the uh, church leaders would gather and have kind of a retreat. But in that retreat, they would make decisions and stuff like that. But they'd also, just for fun, have a little debate. <laughs> Say, hey guys, you know, while we're sitting here, instead of, you know, enjoying ourselves, let's have a debate. Sweet. So they're like, okay, so they'd have this debate. And his debate was uh, later called the Heidelberg Disputation. And if you remember, he had these uh, theses. He had 28 theses, um, as Luther was wont to do. Remember, he, Luther was um, a medieval guy, right? Uh, what we'll find later is, you know, big names start popping up. Erasmus. Erasmus was a big name. He was like the Bill Maher of the time, right? Do you guys know who Bill Maher is? He's this big liberal who has his own show on HBO, but the liberals have gone so liberal, he almost sounds conservative now, right? And he has, he's a very sarcastic guy, and you almost wish he was conservative because if you have a guy like that on your side, it's really nice because he's really sarcastic, and he really knows how to, how to get, get the other side, right? And he's upset, you know, Bill Maher right now is upset about, you know, the way we've handled the the whole vaccine thing, uh, which is really weird for a liberal to talk about, but he's talking about it, and all the, all the conservatives are like, yeah, yeah, right? And I know I'm oversimplifying this, but that was kind of like Erasmus. Erasmus was a Catholic. He didn't leave the Catholic Church. But he knew how to press the buttons. The Catholic Church was so bad, even Erasmus looked uh, conservative, and people were looking to Erasmus like, this is the guy, he's cool. 
He is cool. Luther, not cool. Luther was a medieval guy, right? Luther was like, these are my theses, and I will spread them out so you can all see what I mean, and then we will discuss, right? And I was like, oh, brother, right? Thomas Aquinas, you know, here we go, right? Because, you know, he had that scholastic idea in his head. And, uh, and just, for your, just for your knowledge, um, at the time where everyone saw Erasmus as the coolest guy in town, who was the guy that said, no, not that guy. We need to be following Luther. Who was that guy? John Calvin. John Calvin was a Luther guy. And it was, it was interesting because it, we're going to learn a little bit later that there was a lot of influence that Luther had on Calvin, particularly when it comes to the supper that we're about to have uh, this morning. Okay, so that catches us up uh, to where we are, and um, I will quickly move through this. The church is starting to get really uh, nervous about Luther. Um, They're realizing that people are finding him uh, persuasive. And, you know, the Catholic Church was a big beast. So for them to worry about someone... Uh, you had to really make a splash uh, for them, because otherwise you're just a crazy person. Like you know, the more they ignore you, the crazier you look, right? But Luther was not being ignored, and so what they did was they the they had a few um, uh, church leaders who were pretty big names, and they said, "Hey, Luther." Uh, we would like to discuss these things with you. And you got to understand, Luther's like, oh, finally, okay. People want to talk about this, and we can get some uh, reform going on in the church. This is great. So they're like, come on. Well, and so then they say, hey, Luther, uh, we understand you like beer. Would you, li- would, you, would you like some beer? And he's like, well, you know, is the Pope Catholic? Uh, so, um, so Luther, <laughs> I don't think they had that phrase back then, but... Uh, um, <laughs> So they started, uh, they started giving him all this, you know, they started feeding him beer, you know, at his favorite pub, and, and they're like, so what do you think of the Pope? And he's like, oh man, let me tell you, right? And he wasn't drunk, but, you know, it loosened his tongue a little bit, and there was a Dominican monk, literally, hiding behind a curtain, uh, taking notes of everything that Luther said so he can report, Right? I won't make any connections to, uh, <laughs> to uh, you know, the way this, this works sometimes uh, at schools and colleges where people might tell on each other for things. But that's how it was working, right? And so they said, and so he was summoned to Rome because someone tattled on him, right? The guy behind the curtain. Think of how unmasculine you would have to feel with your little piece of paper and your pen like, what else did he say? And he's like writing it down. It's, anyway, Luther, Luther probably would have been happy to say it with the guy standing there. He didn't have to hide behind a curtain. So, um, so he was summoned to Rome in 1518, but Frederick the Wise, remember Frederick the Wise? Frederick the Wise was the guy that was kind of in charge of uh, the area that Luther um, lived in. He was, he was one, of the, um, one of the electorates that, that was a pretty valuable guy. 
And so what he so he never, and this is important to know, Frederick the Wise saves Luther many, many times, but never met Luther. He never met him, never shook his hand, never had a conversation with him. Why? Because he wanted a plausible deniability. He wanted to say, you know, I'm not trying to look out for Luther. I'm just saying, I'm, you know, you can't just take my guy away. This is my land. I can control it. Right? He's trying to keep that professionalism because if he starts looking like he's trying to protect Luther because he likes Luther's ideas, well, that makes him a bad electorate. Right? That makes him a bad, a bad ruler, and bad things can happen to him. And not just that, but you, he might lose his power. And Luther really needed his power. Right? He really saves him when he gets to the uh, Diet of Worms. So Frederick the Wise you know, says, you can't just... Uh, you know, export one of my people. You need my permission. And they said, okay, well, can we? And he says, no. <laughs> and so um, he's protected. So they have another, uh, another way of getting to Luther. Uh, the Catholic Church has, you know, uh, pockets that go pretty deep, right? Luther, he's just a professor slash, slash uh, priest he's with some ideas. Um, so they get this guy named John Eck. you got to be careful. There's two John Ecks that live pretty close together, so that's nice. Uh, but this guy, John Eck, was kind of like the debater guy. He was the guy that the Catholic Church says, okay, release the Kraken. John Eck is the Kraken. Okay, John Eck goes out there, and he's like, I want to debate you, Luther. And Luther's like, oh, finally. We can get some reform going on in the church. People will finally see what I'm talking about. This is great. Luther's still thinking the church needs some reform, but it will be okay. John X thinking, I need him to say something heretical so we can burn his body. Right? This is what's going on. Okay. Now we see it because we're looking back. To Luther, he's like, okay, good, let's talk. Um, and so 1519, they both arrive in Leipzig uh, for this debate. The night before the debate, Luther preaches at a, um, at a church, and John Eck attends. Now, Luther could have done a, um, could have done a sermon on, hey, uh, let's love each other. He could have done John 3.16. He could have done anything he wanted, but he chose to talk about Peter being handed the keys. Now, if you remember, the Catholic Church understands Peter to be the first pope. Peter was handed the keys of the church. Upon his, you know, the, this rock, Peter, Petra, rock, you know, the, the whole thing, the church is established in you, Peter, the person, and that is how the Catholic Church says he's the first pope. We got to keep this line going. And whoever the pope is is related to Peter. Okay? So to say anything other than that is basically saying, I dare you. Let's come on, right? And I mean, it's right before a debate. And so Luther says, when Christ handed the keys to Peter, Peter wasn't, a, wasn't being representative of Peter himself. Peter was the church. What is he saying? 
He's saying that Christ gave the keys not to an individual named Peter, but he gave the keys to the church. We have just bypassed Pope, and the keys go to the church. Well, that is heresy, right? When John Eck heard that, uh, if you remember the, um, um, the Grinch, when he smiles and he goes all the way up, his, that was him. That was John Eck. He had the Grinch smile where he was like, yes, keep saying that, Luther. Uh, you have come into my trap and I will destroy you. Okay, so, um, so Luther preaches this thing and John Eck says, this is bohemian talk. Now, now, maybe some of you might know what it means, you know, some people might, we have this idea of, you know, to be a bohemian is actually, you know, to be this sensuous, weird person. But who was a bohemian? John Huss. John Huss. Yes. Yes. Um, and, you know, Huss, I think, is how you're supposed to say it. I always say Huss because I'm American and I change things as I want. <laughs> like, you know, we fiancé. Right? Um, okay. Huss was burnt at the stake because he was saying things like this. John Eck is getting, the, is getting the language going so that he can get everyone saying, oh yeah, he's like that guy that was burnt at the stake. And you're not burnt at the stake for no reason. You're burnt at the stake because you're a terrible heretic. Right? And so, and Luther's saying this, right? Luther, it's, it, it would it'd be equivalent, especially to the Pope and the, and the high-minded Catholics, it would be like comparing someone to Hitler. I mean, when you're talking about someone who's a heretic, you're talking about someone who is just out to be pure evil, and the burning was a wonderful thing, okay? So Huss, if in Czech, means goose, Okay, and so as uh, Huss was being burnt at the stake, he said this. At least it was it was said that he said this. Uh, some of this is legend because you know we didn't have recording equipment back then, but I, I want to believe it so much that even if someone proved it wrong, I would still believe it. So Huss says, as he's as he's uh, being tied up, he says, "You can you can burn this goose, but in my ashes a." Uh, a swan will arise. So you can burn this goose or uh, fry this goose or something like that, but from my ashes a swan will arise. Now what you will see if you go to particular like really ornate Lutheran churches, you will notice that their pulpit has this swan on it. Many of them have this big swan on the front because who do they think the swan is? Luther, yes. And Luther wasn't afraid of grabbing and grabbing onto that too. He was like, "Yeah, I'm this one." Uh, and he might have been. So uh, the debate takes place, and now the the debate really is about church authority, right? This is the issue, and Eck traps Luther into identifying with Huss. So Eck in the debate says, "You know, you're talking like Huss. You're saying this about you know you're." You're, you're basically just supporting Huss. And then Luther goes, well, there's a lot of things Huss said that weren't, weren't heresy. And, you know, which is a, a fair statement. But man, it, ruined, it 
at that point, the smile got even bigger on, on John Eck's face because he just said that not everything Huss said is bad. And then Luther is now kind of accepting the identity, right? The, the way to get Luther was that, you know, you're just like John Huss, and the debate would be, no, I'm not. Instead, the debate turned into, yeah, I'm a little like him, and now he's done, right? And it's at that point, uh, many historians believe that Luther finally sees the church is not able to be fixed. He really realizes during that debate that this isn't about the church being reformed from the inside. This is about reformation leaving the church. That the church cannot be saved. If I really believe that the keys were given to the church and not to the pope, to a some kind of pope, then I'm just I'm not even with them anymore. I'm something's different here that's theologically different. Because I've, he's even realizing that down to the sacraments, he's seeing a big difference, right? <clears throat> and this leads, of course, a couple of years later, to the Diet of Worms. Worms, as I believe it said. Uh, Luther was ordered to stand trial. This was the chance for the Catholic Church to burn Luther. Luther understood this because in those days, People had seen a lot of people burning. It's a violent death. We've talked about it before. People would pay money to get, um, to get a sack put around their, uh, their neck that had uh, gunpowder in it so that they could lean down into the fire and the gunpowder could explode in their face so that they would die faster. You would pay money to die that way so you wouldn't just sit there and slowly burn from your feet up. Oftentimes, uh, they would even... Uh, restrict the crowds from putting anything in the fire because they wanted it to burn slowly. This is what Luther is facing at the Diet of Worms. Now, some people say, oh, Luther never, was never burned at the stake. He doesn't know, you know, you know, he was just looking out for himself. Some people say things like that um, who may not have read history. But the Diet of Worms demonstrates that Luther was really facing this situation. This is what the Diet of Worms was for. The Diet of Worms was not to check out, what do you have to say, Luther? It was the Diet of Worms was designed for him to say what he was saying so they could get it on paper and get him on a, on a stake and burn him. That's what it was for. Eck, of course, was present at the Diet of Worms. And they presented Luther with all the copies of his, of his writings, and they said, do you stand behind everything you have said? And Luther, realizing that this is all about him being burnt at the stake, wanted to make sure, so he said, can I look over it over the night to make sure I mean what I say so I know what I'm dying for here. So he, he reads over it the next morning. Um, it is said that he said this. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason... For I do not trust either in the Pope or the councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and uh, contradicted themselves. I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not retract anything 
since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. May God help me. Amen. There's even the, the legend that he says, um, oh, what was the famous? I didn't even write it down because I thought, oh, you'll remember that. I don't. Here I stand, I can do no other. Yes. Um, and that's, you know, that's another legend, and it's, it could be what he said. I like to believe it. Um, and so they arrest Luther, uh, so they're going to take him to be burnt. As they are traveling to take him into Rome, uh, Frederick the Wise has him captured. Um, uh, literally captured and taken back to Frederick the Wise's uh, territory. And he remains in hiding there um, at Wartburg Castle, where uh, he does translation, he does a lot of stuff. He hides there for a long time under the protection of Frederick the Wise, who never meets him. Um, I wanted to talk quickly about how, how Luther uh, understood Scripture, because it will help us underst- understand how he views the table. Um, and it's, it's admirable. I think we should admire it. I think we ought to be careful about it, but we should admire this. Um, oftentimes, my dispensational brothers and sisters in Christ might uh, have said that, well, you Reformed people don't take the Bible literally. And, uh, and it's, it's an interesting thing, because I tell them, well, if you took it literally, you'd be Lutherans. <laughs> um, and what I mean by that is... Luther took the Bible absolutely at its most literal, literal meaning. And he felt he could do that because he did not see the Bible as a mere recording. He saw the Bible as a living, breathing thing that is the speech of God himself. And if the speech of God says, let there be light, and when there was no light, suddenly there is light, then that is how all of Scripture is. So when, whenever God says, this is the way it is, even if it doesn't seem that way, that's the way it is because he speaks reality. So scripture is not something that merely record, is a record of history. It speaks reality into the world. And so when scripture says, uh, when Jesus says, this is my body, then it's his body. And when scripture says he broke the bread, then it's really bread. So it's really bread, and it's really Christ's body. And someone will say, well, then how is that possible? I say, it doesn't matter how it's possible. It has been spoken into reality. Does that make sense? This is how Luther looks at things. Now, that's very admirable, but it also gets you into some trouble, Um, particularly the way he looked at the um, communicatio idiomatum, the idea of, you know, what does it mean for Christ's natures and all these sort of things? Are they mixed? And I will say this, with Luther, he did not believe that Christ's two natures were mixed. He believed they're a lot more close, closer together than what would make us feel comfortable. He saw, so if you take a piece of iron and you heat it up, and it gets red, Right? The heat is within the iron, but the heat is not the iron. Does that make sense? The heat is causing the iron to become red, but the heat still is not the iron, and the iron is not the heat. But that closeness, that's what he's talking about, is the nature 
of Christ's human nature and Christ's uh, deific nature, if I can put it that way. Okay. Um, now that causes problems because you think, well, then how does, when Christ dies on the cross, how does he really representing me if his deific nature is one, you know, is that much into his human nature? We're not that way. And we really need Christ to die on the cross as a human so that he is a sacrifice for us humans, right? So it causes those kind of problems. Luther would just say, you're thinking about it too much. <laughs> But Calvin, uh, you know, Calvin wanted to make sure, he wanted to be careful. And so when it came to uh, communion, this was very important to, to, to Luther, to the point where there's another legend. Um, they decided to, ha- well, this isn't part of the legend. Uh, they decided to have this, um, the Mar- Marburg Quark. Colloquy, uh, these very important words for theologians, um, where all these men came together, the most important men being Martin Luther, uh, Zwingli, and uh, Philip Melanchthon. Philip Melanchthon was kind of the referee. He's kind of an academic, but Luther loved him. Uh, I mean, loved him like a, like a son. Um, and, uh, and they didn't even agree on a lot of things uh, that you would think would be important, like uh, human freedom. Uh, you know, here Luther responds to Erasmus with, you know, bondage of the of the will, um, and Melanchthon really wasn't on board with that. That's why most uh, liberal Lutherans today really are Philippists; they're not Lutherans. My point is this: they all meet at the Marburg Colloquy, and Zwingli, as you know, says. This is just a remembrance. It's just, remember God, here's a piece of bread that that's, uh, is a distant symbol from the actual flesh. Here's some wine, a distant symbol from the actual blood. Um, there's no real connection other than you just think about Jesus' death when you take it, and that's all it is. It's a memorial, nothing else. Luther saying, Christ said, this is my body. And he broke the bread. How on earth can you say this isn't Christ's body? And it came down to the point where um, there's a legend where, uh, there's two legends. There's one where it says Luther cut into a table, hoc es corpus meum, this is my body. Uh, another legend says he wrote it in chalk. And then he put, a, you know, he put the tablecloth over it. And then when they got into the debate, he rips it off the table and says, it says, this is my body. It's a really dramatic moment. Uh, I don't know if that actually happened, but it would be cool. Um, so uh, all this happens in 1529. They come to an understanding of the Lord's table all the way. I mean, they're agreeing, agreeing, agreeing. Martin Booser is going back and forth saying, they agree, they agree. I mean, he's a very... Sweet guy. I mean, Martin Booser, Booser is a very sweet, sweet, you know, guy. He just wants everyone to be united, uh, very kind. People would always look at him as the man that, you know, became a father to them. Very nice guy. Um, not that Luther wasn't a nice guy, but um, you don't cuddle up to Luther. So, um, <clears throat> so they, they go back and forth. Luther claimed that the body of Christ was not eaten in a gross, material way, but rather in some mysterious way. Now, this is what's important. 
Luther wasn't really getting to the point of halfway transubstantiation. Okay? It wasn't that uh, the, the bread was just bread and then through some miraculous thing, it becomes half God's body and half bread somehow through a half transubstantiation that some people have come to think of it as a consubstantiation. But rather, in a mysterious way, through God's work alone, not a magic trick by a priest, but through God's work alone, there's this mysterious partaking of Christ's actual body in a not in a material way, as he would say, but in a mysterious way. And it was unclear what this exactly meant. Uh, the Philippists began to say, no, it's a literal, you're eating the body. Um, but uh, Zwingli said, oh boy. So Zwingli said, no, you know, if, if you're eating the body, this means that you are doing it in a literal sense. You're eating in this gross material way where you're digesting Jesus Christ, and then he's exiting your body. I mean, that's just disgusting. And that's where Luther is saying, that's not what I'm saying. So if that's not what Luther is saying, he is saying something different about the presence of Christ that's different than the Catholics' presence. The Catholics did have to think about um, all that, where, to the point where they even wouldn't let the congregation take Christ, uh, the, the bread anymore because they were afraid a crumb would fall on the ground and a rat would eat it, and now the rat is eating Christ's literal body. So they wouldn't even let people take it. So I say all that to say if Calvin was there, Calvin would have said, I think I know where Luther is going with this. He means there is a spiritual eating. And even if Luther was, uh, you know, I think Luther probably would have said, well, it's got to be a little more than that. You're thinking about it too much, Calvin, but I'm okay with what you're saying. I think Luther would be okay with it. There would have been not a full agreement, but an allowance of Calvin's view, which was we are eating the body of Christ through the Spirit, and it was, it's through the actual spirit, not just a general spiritual eating, but through the spirit we eat the body of Christ. And although it's not a physical, you know, a, a physical actual flesh of Christ that you digest, but it is a mysterious eating of Christ through the spirit. And that's how Calvin saw it, and I think there would have been allowance if Calvin was there because I think you lose something when all you're doing is just seeing God's uh, presence as a memorial. And all you're doing is just eating and remembering these distant symbols. But rather, what we see in Calvin is something is happening. There's a bestowal of grace here where your faith is actually strengthened through eating of Christ through the Spirit. It's mysterious, but if we look at Scripture speaking, whether well, God speaks into the reality, I think uh, we can see the point. Okay, so Luther dies in 1546. That's all we have time for. All right, let's have a word of prayer. I hope that's helpful for you. Uh, you know, you can Wikipedia him. There's about 20% of that stuff that's true. All right, let's pray. 
Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time that we have to think on these things, and even have as we think on uh, your supper that we will be partaking in today, Lord, we pray that we would be prepared for it, and we pray that we think on you, and that our, and our faith really would be encouraged and strengthened through this, uh, through this supper, Lord. We ask these things in your Son's name. Amen.